Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. starting in verse 40. Now the setting for this set of miracles is that Jesus traveled from Galilee to Capernaum, which is about a five and a half hour walk, if you're walking slowly between the two cities. And when he got there, it was Saturday morning, and so he went to a synagogue. We don't know if he got there early and stayed the night, but on Saturday he went to synagogue, which is the normal day of worship for the Jewish people. And during the synagogue service, somebody who was demon-possessed made himself known, and Jesus was able to cleanse them to cast out the demons, and everybody was in awe of his teaching. He taught with authority, and he even had command over demons. Then when the service was over, Jesus and a few of his disciples went two blocks to Peter's house. And when they arrived at Peter's house, and it's still Saturday, they found that Peter's mother-in-law had a fever, was sick unto death. And if Jesus didn't intervene, she probably would not have survived with a fever that bad. And so Jesus took her by the hand and healed her instantly back to full strength, back to full health. And this was still on Saturday, still on the Sabbath. And Jesus' healing on the Sabbath will later be used by the Pharisees and the chief priests to accuse him of being a sinner of doing work on a Saturday. You're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. Now, from Jesus' point of view, I'm sure the healing was not hard work, but yet they would look at it and they would say, ah, you, you touched people or you did stuff on the Sabbath and therefore you are a sinner. But at this point in time, word spread. As you recall, Peter's house was in a kind of a court, kind of a cul-de-sac, if you will. There were many houses around a central courtyard. And when Peter probably exclaimed with gladness that his mother-in-law was healed, people came to see what was going on. They saw Jesus. They understood that she was sick. She's no longer sick. And word spread very quickly amongst those who lived in that little neighborhood of what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was able to do. Now, if you look at this passage, this passage is also repeated in Matthew 8 and Mark 1. And in all three of the passages, it starts by saying, now when the sun was setting. And you look at that and you go, huh, okay, they're telling us about a passage of time, but what does this mean? 
If you live in a Jewish community, you are very limited as to what you can do on a Sabbath. You are limited by what food you can eat, how you can prepare that food, how far you can travel, what sort of people you can have in your house, what sort of things you can do. Even today, there are Jewish people because the Bible says you cannot use fire on a Sabbath. They will not use any electricity on a Saturday. They will trip all the breakers and turn off all their phones and things so that they do not use any electricity because that's the modern equivalent of fire, I guess, on a Saturday. So even today, there are people who are limited on what they can do on Saturday. Now, in the Jewish calendar, the day ended when the sun went down. And so when it says, now the sun was setting, what that's telling us is it's now Sunday. It is no longer Saturday, it is no longer the Sabbath, and these rules, these limiting rules, no longer apply. So people can now travel is the big one, because people came from all over to come see Jesus. They may have come as far as Galilee, which is a five-hour walk, and so they can't do that during the Sabbath, but you can do it now on Sunday because you don't have the limiting rules. And people came, and it says, Now the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them. And so you have people who cannot necessarily travel on their own, and they were brought by family members. What happened was people heard and said, Jesus healed this woman who was nigh unto death. And they think, well, you know, my, my son can't walk because of whatever. And so they put him on a stretcher or carried him and brought him to Jesus. And so people are bringing their friends and their relatives who cannot bring themselves, I'm sure there were others who perhaps somebody had a limp or a broken arm or something of this nature and they could still walk and travel and they brought themselves. And so it is spreading throughout the whole land, northern Sea of Galilee area, and more people than I think we could probably count came. Now, of course, there would be long lines for two reasons. One... The doorway into Peter's house was a normal-sized doorway. You can't get a thousand people through that doorway at once. You've got to form a line. Jesus, uh, Peter, as I said, was also lived in a courtyard, and there was a single gate that allowed people into the courtyard, and so that was another bottleneck. But people would come, and there would be lines, and people would stay there for hours, perhaps until the sun came up on Sunday morning, and Jesus would heal them all. There is also the statement that he healed many with demons. And when they came out, they said, you are the son of God. And Jesus told them to be quiet and to not speak. And when Jesus tells a demon to not speak, they don't speak. And so the demons know who Jesus is. They've seen him from a long time ago. He created them. Their first view of reality when they came into being was of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And so they knew who they were dealing with. They could see through the, the human covering, if you will, that Jesus had during the incarnation. 
and they were able to tell that he was in fact God Almighty, the Creator, and he was able to do anything with a word he could tell them to cease to exist, and they would. And so they, they respond to him in a way that only demons can worship by declaring who he is. Now, if you look in Mark, if you look in uh, Mark 1, Matthew, Mark, and Mark 1, starting in 32, it says, That evening at sundown, so you have another statement that the day is ending, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered through together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out demons. Now here it says he healed many. Now if you look at that in modern language, you say, Ah, well, he healed many, that means some he did not heal. But that is not how the Greek and the Jewish mind uses the word many. Many is just a big number, an uncountable number. Jesus healed everybody who came. If you look in Matthew 8, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 8, starting in 16, it says, that evening, once again, the sun is going down, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. If you were brought to Jesus that night, you would be healed. Nobody was sent away unhealed. Nobody was sent away, Jesus saying, I'm sorry, I can't do it, or I don't know what this disease is. All three passages say various diseases. If you can, today we can go to places like WebMD. We can look at all the diseases. And if you want to feel bad about yourself, go to WebMD and start looking at all the symptoms that you have. And it'll tell you that you have these 20 diseases. There are more diseases than a single person can name. And with all the names of all the strange diseases... The average person, like you and me, cannot name all the diseases. We can't figure out how to pronounce all the diseases. There are more diseases than there are people, perhaps, in the world. There are a bunch of different diseases, and different areas have different diseases. And Jesus healed them all. Jesus does not look at a disease. Jesus does not look at a malady and, and scratch his head and not know what that is. Jesus knows about all diseases. He knows about all problems. He knows about all aches and pains and difficulties that we have. And he can and does heal them all. And in this particular situation in Peter's house, he did not turn anybody away. Everybody who came, no matter what their disease was, they were healed. And so he healed various diseases and he cast out demons. And people have asked and people have asked me, uh, what's the deal with all these demon possessions that was going on during the time of Jesus? Was there more possession than there was, is today? And the, the answer to that is, I don't know, and neither do you. Nobody knows. Uh, as I've said before, the number of demons 
are fixed. There's X number of demons. When they were created in Genesis 1, 1 through 1, 3, they were all created all at once. They were all created as adult angels, if you will, functional angels. There's no such thing as a baby angel. There's no such thing as an old angel. All angels are created at a particular visual age, and they stay that way for their whole lives, which is forever. Angels do live forever, as you and I do. We do live forever in one way or another, in either heaven or hell. We live forever, so it isn't to marvel at an angel. You're going to meet them someday, and you can talk about what it means to live forever, because they understand it, and you will at that point, too. And so angels were all created, and when we started this world, there were only two people. And so if there were a bunch of angels, all those angels could gang up on Adam and Eve, and it seems they did, and, and caused them or prompted them, gave them the opportunity to sin, and they took it. But as more and more people, the number of people grew, you had it growing into the million number somewhere around there. When the sin got so bad, God wiped them all out, saving Noah and his family and all the animals. And then from Noah, the world began to populate again. And now there's seven and a half some odd billion people on the earth. But the number of demons are the same, and so it's really quite possible, and I believe it's true, that people outnumber demons, so that demon possession would not be so concentrated. And one thing you have when you have Jesus walking the earth, this was something that was inconceivable to the angels and the demons. This was inconceivable to the spiritual forces that God would lower himself so much as to walk amongst us dirty, filthy, contradictory, evil people that he, you know, for the first time in all of eternity, Jesus got hungry. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus got dirty. For the first time in all eternity, Jesus got tired. And these are things that that God, the Creator God, shouldn't have to deal with. And so you have angels looking at that and being amazed at the, the, the word that theologians use is the condensation of Christ to walk among us. And so when they see Him walking right there, this unbelievable, amazing thing that can only happen once in all of eternity has happened, and the only response is to uh, expose themselves and declare this person to be the Son of God, to be Christ. There isn't that sort of exposure today, and so there may be people... Probably not here, but there may be people that you encounter in the world who are demon-possessed, but there's no reason for them to expose themselves. I believe demons are definitely involved in every false religion. 
that has been invented, that has been promoted, the advancement of, of false religions throughout uh, various parts of the country, the fact of no religion, the communist view is that God does not exist, that is also promoted and advanced by demons and demonic activity. I'm not necessarily saying every evil leader is demon-possessed, but definitely demons are whispering in their ears. All this to say, there's nothing today to expose demonic activity because Christ is not walking around. And I believe that the church has gotten if you will, weak in response to culture, that we have let culture get more and more evil, more and more self-centered, more and more ambitious, more and more sinful, and we just say, well, it's, that's not me. You know, I'm going to live a pure and holy life, but I don't care what they do. And so we continue to advance through our voting and through our not caring the advancement of evil that demons do not have to expose themselves. But in every passage where a demon comes out in the presence of Christ, Christ shuts them down and tells them to, you know, get out and go away. And there's other activities where they're put into a herd of pigs and things of this nature. And there is no fight of good and evil in the world today. There is no fight of God on one side, Satan on the other, and we don't know who's going to win. That sort of thing does not exist. God has won. God has already declared, and you can look through Revelation and Daniel and a little bit in Ezekiel, how God's going to beat them all, and God is going to throw Satan into the lake of fire. And Satan can't say no. He's going to go there for all eternity for his rebellion. Also in, uh, in Matthew 8, in Matthew 8, 17, Matthew 8, 17, Matthew was talking about all these healings and all the casting out of the demons. And in 17, it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And so we look at that. And fortunately, we have an internet search machine and we have concordances and we have people who have done all the work. Uh, Matthew does not say... In Isaiah 53, you didn't know what Isaiah 53 was. Isaiah was one big 66 chapter letter back in the time of Matthew. There were not chapter numbers and there were not verse numbers when Matthew was writing this. And so he just knows that Isaiah, somewhere in this big old book, said this. And what happened was, it was Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorries, sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, spitten, smitten by God, and afflicted. We do not get an exact word for word. We find that the rules for quotation for biblical authors are really loose. 
They will paraphrase, they will put words out of order, but we know what Matthew is saying and we know what he meant. He meant that a long time ago somebody said this about Jesus Christ. Now how long ago was this said? Isaiah was a, the longest serving prophet in the Old Testament. He served under four kings. Uh, in the prophet, in the, in the Old Testament, longer than anybody else. And during those 52 years, he wrote and may have had a scribe. There's, there's a sense that uh, the prophets didn't always write their own words, but they had scribes that as they were describing what they saw, describing what they heard, the scribe was able to write it down because they were more of a sound mind. Apparently it can get very confusing and difficult when you're in the middle of receiving a prophecy of God to be able to functionally write a book. And so he probably had a scribe. Now when did he do this? He started this in 740 BC. Okay? If Jesus was born at zero... That's 740 years before Jesus. This was written. He read it from 740 B.C. to 686 B.C. If you remember, B.C. counts backwards. So it's uh, 80 years or so that he wrote this 66-chapter cha uh, book. Now, in the book of Acts, uh, there is a guy. He's an Ethiopian. And he's in charge of the treasury of his queen. And he came to Jerusalem to worship. And he's reading out loud the book of Isaiah as he's riding along. It says he's sitting in his chariot. You may have seen pictures of these little one-man chariots with, you know, Ben-Hur. They also had bigger, multi, you know, four, five, six-wheel chariots that were more like carts. But they were still called chariots, and you could sit in them. And you could have a driver up there, and you'd sit back here and read your scroll and things of this nature. Now, the book of Acts says it this way. Now, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, one of the disciples, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There is a, this is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of the treasury. He had come to worship to Jerusalem. So he is some kind of believer in the God of the Jews. As he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah... And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So he ran up to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? This is a witnessing opportunity. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he is reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
It, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask, does this prophet say this about himself or somebody else? And Philip says, Funny you should ask. Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture, which was... Isaiah 53, he started with Isaiah 53 and told him the good news about Jesus. And he said, as they were going along with the road, he came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what prevents me from being baptized? The eunuch became a believer in Jesus Christ. And you and I, when we get to heaven... We can find this eunuch and we can get his story and we can talk to him because he's going to be there waiting for us. He's already been there for 2,000 some odd years and he's waiting for us to come so that we can worship together the one true and living God. And so what does this tell us? It tells us that 700 years before Jesus Christ, God told Isaiah, he's going to fix it all someday. Back in Isaiah's day, there was Assyrians and there were Egyptians and there were problems. There was war. When we look at the news today, we have war in the Ukraine and it's rough. And we say, wow, I don't like war. Well, back in those days, if you lived in the time of Isaiah, you woke every day and there was some country that wanted to wipe you out. There was some country that was bigger than you in Jerusalem who wanted you to die. And so Isaiah wrote a bunch of stuff. And when he gets to Isaiah 53, when he gets that part of the book, God gives him a vision of the salvation of not only the Jews, but of everybody. Anybody who comes to Jesus can and will be saved. And this is the story, that chapter, Isaiah 53, is the story of Jesus Christ. Now something interesting about Isaiah 53 is that it describes in detail a crucifixion taking somebody, stripping them, nailing them to a T-shaped piece of wood and letting time and blood loss and the environment kill them over hours, sometimes days. Now, if you were to get in your time machine and go back and talk to Isaiah and say, what are you writing about? He'll say, oh, I don't know. I just saw this vision because nobody in the world, nobody in the world was crucifying anybody. It was considered too slow. It was considered too barbaric. The Assyrians would just come and kill you, kill everybody and see who's left. I mean, that was their way, kill people fast and in great numbers, and that's how they showed their might. That's how they put fear into the people that were around, the speed at which they killed people. When you finally get to the Romans, the Romans said, nah, we need public torture. 
Now the people before the Romans, the Greeks, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, would think that's stupid. It takes too much time and too much land. You're dedicating public land for the people to be crucified. And the Romans said, no, 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 no. We got to publicly torture people and that will put fear in them and they will obey us. And so that's what they did. They invented crucifixion. 700 years after Isaiah wrote about it, and then we, way up here, can say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I can read the Gospels, and I can take section from section of the crucifixion in the Gospels and lay it on top of Isaiah 53. All this to say, God does not play catch-up. God does not say, oh no, what do I do now? God does not wonder what's going to happen next. From eternity past and at least 700 years before Christ, God laid out to all the people of the world who were willing to look that this is how he was going to fix it. This is how he was going to stop war. This is how he was going to stop the killing. This is how he was going to save people from their sins. And Matthew recognized it in Matthew 8. Philip and the Ethiopian figured it out in the book of Acts. And this is the story. If anybody says, and I've heard people say, Jesus Christ is nowhere in the Old Testament. Well, you can start with Isaiah 53. But Jesus Christ is everywhere in the Old Testament because Jesus Christ has been the plan since the Garden of Eden. That is what God has chosen to do, to save people. And so what's our response is to say yes to Jesus Christ. And so why did all these people get healed? All these hundreds, maybe thousands of people get healed, but Jesus had such problem with the Pharisees and the, the chief priests. All these people came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. They didn't care who he was. They didn't care how long the line was. They just needed something and Jesus had it. And so they gave themselves to Jesus and Jesus healed them and saved many, perhaps most of them. When Jesus was going up against the Pharisees, the Pharisees said, I'll take what you have my way. I'll take what you have to advance my cause. I want to put Jesus on a leash to advance my power and my strength. And that is why the Pharisees never got the compassion of Jesus Christ, Nicodemus being the exception. The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, never got the compassion of Jesus Christ because they wanted to mold him to their needs. They wanted to mold him to their plans. And today, if somebody wants to come to Jesus Christ, they come to Jesus Christ on his terms. They find out who he is, they believe in who he is, and they give themselves over to that they have learned about. And that is how you get saved. That is how Christ will save you from your sins and from time to time, it seems a lot sometimes and not others, Jesus will heal your diseases. Jesus did not come to 
heal diseases only. He came to save us from, her, from our sins. And yet there are people today who say, I am going to use Jesus for my own ends. I'm going to use Jesus for my own plans and my own ambitions. And those people we will not see in heaven. We will see people who come to Jesus with their vulnerable hearts open and come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. And if you come to Jesus humbly, He will never, ever, 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 ever turn you away. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank You that You sent Your Son and that we are saved by faith by grace alone, and that you will never turn away anybody that comes to you in faith. Lord, we praise you for all these things and ask your blessing upon the remainder of the day and this time of communion. And we ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.